Santon Time Studios in Africa's richest square mile. This is the Santon Times Podcast with your host, Alexander. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Santon Times Podcast. It's episode 62, week 32, and we're well into August and uh, one week closer to spring in South Africa. If you want to get in touch with this podcast, you can email editor at santantimes.co.za. You can also connect with us on social media at Santon Times and visit the website at www.santontimes.co.za. Also, don't forget to follow, subscribe, share, and leave your review or rating of this podcast on your preferred podcast platform. So wherever you're listening to, I welcome you once again to uh, our podcast about Santon and pretty much everything else that's happening all over. If you're listening in Greater Santon, welcome. If you're listening somewhere beyond Greater Santon, you're also welcome. And uh, I'd like to also recognize uh, some of our listeners uh, around the world, including places like Hong Kong, Saudi, Norway, Serbia, Poland, and Malta, all as well in Santonland. And I'm not just pulling those countries out of a hat or out of my thumb or wherever I'd be pulling it from. These are... You know, actual stats. This is where people are listening from. And uh, I'd be fascinated to hear from you if you are listening from one of these countries. Uh, what interests you about Santon? Have you visited Santon? Are you coming to Santon? Uh, are you cabin crew pilots? I know we've got a lot of those listening to uh, the Santon Times podcast and also visiting the website. And uh, talking about the website, uh, there's a great new competition for you uh, where you can win some gin. I think we've got uh, a competition now every two weeks. So don't forget to go onto the website as often as you can because uh, you don't want to miss out on some of those great prizes that are coming up. So uh, don't forget to enter. Well, what's happening in South Africa and in Santon? Well, we're not out of the woods in terms of COVID-19. It still remains uh, very much a reality. And this week, I found myself uh, at the end of a barrel of a gun. As South African stories go, Tuesday evening, out for some dinner because there was some generator or some substation that blew up or fell apart in Santon, and uh, we we were without power for most of Tuesday. And uh, you know you have to make dinner plans, so popped out for something to eat. And on what time was it? Seven thirty, eight ish. Uh, heading back to Santon via Rosebank through Ilovo on Ravonia Road. And you get to that intersection where there's that total garage with the mug and bean. It's right next to the Thrap Center. Uh, so you're heading sort of towards Santon in the far left lane. And I notice a minibus taxi parked at the red traffic light in the middle lane. And you know how these things sometimes go with your gut instinct, the feeling that you get about things sometimes. And this particular minibus taxi felt a little bit out of place. It felt a bit odd, and as I approached the red traffic light, I just had a very, very strange feeling about it. But you often just sort of, you know, put it aside. You don't really pay too much attention to it, but I was on edge. I must be honest, there was something that just didn't seem right. And as the car comes to a stop at the red traffic light next to the minibus taxi, something catches my eye in the rearview mirror, and I see somebody moving past the back window, and then coming up close alongside the left of the car. And when I say close, not sort of walking on the pavement, like somebody who's literally swiping or or pressing up against the car as they make their way towards the passenger side window. And I can see this happening in the rear in, in the side mirror. 
And instantaneously, I, I got a feeling that something was going down. And, you know, your foot shifts from the brake to the accelerator. And as this young guy, from what I can make out in the split second that I witnessed all of this, makes his way to the side window, he pushes his face up against the window and he pushes a gun up against the window and taps the window twice and makes sort of a movement like a telephone, a telephone movement, asking for cell phones. And at that point, I thought, well, I'm not going to be part of this. And I accelerate and I'm out of there and put foot straight through a red traffic light down Ravonia Road, pretty much all the way to the American Embassy, if you know where that is in Santon, opposite Discovery Place. And at that point, I see a SAPS patrol vehicle making its way through Santon. I wave down the the, the driver and uh, give him a quick breakdown of what happened. And uh, they responded instantaneously. They put on their blue light, did a U-turn and headed towards uh, Ilovo. And yeah, I don't know what came of it, but a harrowing experience. Uh, But at the same time, what was quite disturbing was how cool, calm and collected I reacted to the whole thing. It was almost like I was trained. I was it's almost like you were expecting something to happen. And I think in most civilized countries, in most first world countries where we're not dealing with these sort of things on a regular basis, some people would probably be absolutely in in, in shock and trauma and possibly this would even be making the front page of a newspaper. But this isn't because it's just another day in South Africa and unfortunately, after posting something on, on, on Instagram uh, later that evening, just advising people to stay clear of the Elovo area and just be cautious and vigilant when you drive through Elovo, I got so many messages from people, WhatsApps, direct messages saying, yeah, not the first time that's happened in Elovo. It seems to be a bit of a hot spot. Call it drive, Elovo, that sort of Ravonia Road. They've had friends uh, you know, who own businesses in the area, people who've passed through there who've experienced a very similar scenario. So my first word of caution is to be careful when you travel through Ilova and uh, and the Rosebank area. I know one of the hot questions that come through on the Santon Times very often from people who visit internationally, is Santon safe to walk around at night? And it's something that we still need to dissect. But I can tell you for a fact that I think Ilova at the moment is uh, not ideal. Um, it is very badly lit, the road specifically. And the roads were very quiet. And I think that's also a bit of a side effect of lockdowns and curfews is that nobody wants to go out at night. And to some extent, I think there was a huge advantage that it was quiet because there was no car in front of us. I could accelerate, go through a red traffic light because I had to without too much concern of any oncoming traffic or any other traffic involved in the process. Uh, But at the same time, it's that quietness and that silence that allows these opportunistic criminals to do what they do. And they take a chance. Uh, As I say, there were a lot of things that were on my side at that point. The fact that there was no one in front of me. The fact that I was monitoring my mirrors. And that I reacted instantaneously. And I mean, I suppose there's some experts out there that might have their own analysis of if it was the right thing to do, the wrong thing to do. I mean, I'm no sort of crime or hijacking expert, but I can tell you for a fact that being right in front 
at a traffic light, not having anyone in front of you made a huge difference because I could get away instantaneously. I could accelerate instantaneously. There was no negotiation. There was no discussion. The moment I saw that gun coming up against the window, I knew that this is going to be bad news and moved instantaneously. I mean, there was no shots fired. Who even knows if the gun was loaded? Maybe the guy decided, like, you know what? This is not worth it. What am I going to achieve by by shooting at the car or doing anything else? Um, so, yeah, it, it is what it is. Uh, we, 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 got, we got through it all right. Uh, and... Yeah, it's just one of those stories again. They go into the dinner party storytelling books. But I encourage you to be vigilant. I encourage you to be careful. And once again, there are so many stories in South Africa where these things don't end well. And unfortunately, we lose fellow South Africans. And yeah, the sad reality is is that this is honestly a battle between good South Africans and bad South Africans. And as we saw with looting with the unrest a few weeks ago, there are those South Africans who want to create a better South Africa, a South Africa that has a prosperous and strong future, not just for us, but for uh, a country that is competing with the rest of the world. We have a South Africa that is not on that side, a South Africa that wants to be lawless, that wants to do whatever it wants to do, that has no respect or no interest in property, in other human lives, in uh, the law and order. And you have to choose which side of the fence you're going to sit on in terms of this thing because I think there's no gray area with this. And we saw so many good South Africans, law-abiding South Africans, people who appreciate rules. If you look at anybody who wants to put money into this country, who wants to uplift the economy, which also creates jobs, and I'm sure we'll talk about this later on again, those are the people who are looking for law and order. They're looking for rules. They're looking for a place where their money will be safe. Their employees will be safe. Their businesses will be safe. And thank goodness there are some good South Africans who literally took back their suburbs, their country, when they decided to defend their shopping malls during the unrest. And I think a lot of this happens on a daily and weekly basis in a small way in our communities, our suburbs, when You've got CPFs, you've got community forums that are looking out for exactly these kind of incidences. And yeah, I mean, we've got local government elections coming up, maybe not this year, but certainly early next year. And we've got to start asking ourselves questions after all these years of having a democratic country. When is enough enough? How far is too far? I know a lot of people have decided to pack their bags, and we're going to touch on that as well. And say, you know what? I'm out of here. It's a no from me. Four no's and I'm out. I'm going to go live somewhere where I can make a future for my family. And this is across LSM groups. This is across uh, religious beliefs. This is across uh, racial barriers. This is across all these things. Let's not, let's not bring in uh, things that uh, governments and political parties use to divide us because it's divide and conquer. I think South Africa is much stronger united. I think as a united country, we have so much more to go. And I think as South Africans, we generally are a united nation if we choose to be and not be caught up in mainstream media rhetoric and political rhetoric and and these red herrings that we're thrown, uh, that, that are thrown at us in terms of you know what the situation really is like. And I think we have to look at the numbers, we have to look at some of the research that's been done around this 
to really see what the real picture is. But we need to start looking towards building a better South Africa, and that means top-down, something has to change. So coming up on this week's episode, having said all of that, we have an interesting angle on on, on crime stories, which is quite odd, and uh, of course a little bit of light-hearted stuff sprinkled in between. So a quick check-in on all things sport, and the Premier League is returning Uh, More with Jeff in a minute. Then it's a messy job, but someone has to do it. We speak to a woman involved in crime scene cleanups. It's not for the squeamish, I have to tell you. And finally, she is the star of international shows and now Mnet's latest local series. We catch up with one of South Africa's leading actresses. Stay listening. But now let's take a look at some of your news to go. Right, Jolly D. Matongo is Johannesburg's new mayor. Former City of Johannesburg mayoral committee member for finance, Jolly D. Matongo, was elected as the city's new mayor this week. News 24 reports Matongo becomes the third mayor in the city since local government elections in 2016, uh, with the city first being led by former DA member Herman Mashaba, followed by Jeff Makubo, who died last month from COVID-19-related complications at the age of 53. Then a state of disaster has been extended. Uh, My Broadband reports the Minister of Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs Nkosazana Dlamini Zuma has extended South Africa's national state of disaster to September 15th. Dlamini Zuma is required to extend the national state of disaster every month for the COVID-19 lockdown regulations to remain in effect. CSIR researcher Ridwan Suleiman said that the third wave is far from over due to the great contribution in cases from South Africa's coastal provinces. How about a full tank of petrol and a full bottle of wine to go? Well, EWN reports BP and Pick and Pay Express were issued a grocer's license which allows them to sell wine the first such license in the country. Now, the South African Alcohol Policy Alliance, uh, known as SAPA SA, is calling on provincial liquor authorities to implement an immediate moratorium on awarding licenses to allow alcohol to be sold at petrol stations. Director of the SA Medical Research Council's Alcohol, Tobacco and Other Drugs Research Unit, Charles Parry, said that the road traffic death rate was double the global rate. We have a problem with alcohol on our roads, and this is from the World Health Organization. 52% of fatally injured drivers have alcohol levels above 0.05, Parry said. Parry also had questions such as, could government really allow this to move forward without having the data to know what the impact would be in the short and long term? Well, I guess there's a couple of questions that come out there. Do you really need to buy bottles of wine at petrol stations? There's so many places you can already buy wine. Are petrol stations just another one of those places you need to buy them? And having people drinking and driving is never a good idea. And I think most of us agree on that. And then government making decisions without the proper data? I don't know. I'm not surprised. The Cape Independence Advocacy Group says 58% of people want a referendum on Cape Independence. Now, this is a really interesting story about this uh, business that the Western Cape want to become their own country. Well, News24 reports political lobby group, the Cape Independence Advocacy Group, wants Western Cape Premier Alan Windy to urgently hold a referendum for the province to be declared an independent state. The main motivation for people wanting an independent Cape relates to improvement in employment, education, health, and crime prevention. Isn't that what we all want? And isn't that what the elections are all about? 
let's carry on reading this. So for the survey, 886 people all over the age of 18 participated. Not a huge number, but I suppose a fair enough number to maybe get a little bit of a temperature. Primary factors influencing people's opinion. 89% of respondents believe South Africa is going in the wrong direction. 33% said they have considered immigrating as an alternative to SA's chaos and corruption. 73% believe the Western Cape is better managed than the rest of South Africa. 59% believe their lives would improve in an independent Cape. And 75% affirmed their support for non-racialism. 76% believe the province must have more control over its own policies and 62% would prefer less economic interference by the government and support the privatization of key services. Now, there's some things there that we can't or I can't disagree with. I think there's a lot of things that make sense there. I don't know how practical it is for the Western Cape to become its own country. I mean, it's a hell of a border to have to patrol. I mean, they'd have to put their own policing, army, you know, the whole lot would become like a bit like a Monaco, but it seems to be gaining some momentum. And there's uh, more than just this one lobby group that is uh, tabling this. Some of them also want to incorporate the Northern Cape and the Eastern Cape or parts of the Eastern Cape. So let's uh, see what happens with that. And then finally, our last story, rich taxpayers are out of here. Business Tech reports that while the loss of taxpayers has been a growing problem for South Africa over the last decade, the COVID-19 crisis could prove to be a tipping point. For the first time since the current tax brackets were established six years ago, the country will see a drop in the number of top earners this fiscal year, data from Reuters shows. Revenue from the three highest brackets will fall by 8%, around 22.6 billion rand according to previously unreported treasury forecasts. The latest research from New World Wealth and AfriAsia Bank shows that South Africa lost $3,400 millionaires over the last year. Overall, between 2017 and 2020, South Africa lost 8,600 millionaires. That's it for your news to go this week. Don't forget you can visit thesantantimes.co.za for more stories. You're listening to the Santon Times Podcast. All right, time to talk sports again, and uh, our man Jeff Grinding is on the line. Jeff, good to chat to you again. Hey, Alex, great to be back, man. Yeah, man. Okay, so we've got some things to wrap up and some new things to crack open, but uh, let's kick off with the things that we have to uh, finish off. The Olympics are done. Can you believe it? My goodness, what a, I'd almost want to say a drawn-out experience that was. Uh, Having waited since 2020, now in 2021, and before you knew it, it came and went. Your thoughts? These Olympics have really been bittersweet. You know, it's always it's always been a, a favorite of mine to watch the Olympics, in particular the athletic side of it, the gymnastics side of it, the swimming side of it. These have always been have been major major um, highlights and and really things that I've looked forward to. Um, and these Olympics were just they were just different in in so many different ways. Without the crowds being there. Um, without the enthusiasm of the of the magic of what the Olympics really get a, get into people and get into that spirit, so it was it was different. It was sort of bittersweet for me in the end, um, but certainly some phenomenal phenomenal uh, showcasing done by by so many athletes. So yeah, a remarkable event as it always is, but somewhat overshadowed by this by this global pandemic that we're that we're in the midst of. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of effort to put a very positive spin on it as well. I think it was the president of the International Olympic Committee who kind of, you know, I think in his closing speech mentioned that the Olympics and and the athletes that are there represent this hope and this 
endeavor to continue even when the stakes are down. And I guess to some extent, you know, sport does do that. You know, it shows people overcoming really big difficulties, huge challenges, and still achieving. And, you know, I mean, there were some really crazy moments during the Olympics, maybe because a lot of countries hadn't sent some of their big athletes. Maybe some countries had not done the training that they needed to do. And there were a lot of upsets. I mean, records that had been sitting since 1904 and 1918. And you heard constantly heard commentators saying, well, this hasn't happened in the last 60 years. So a lot of that was going on. And that was the, the remarkable aspect of it is that, the, is that the sports that always draw the attention were the ones that sort of really didn't didn't go to plan, you know. Um, I just think of the of both the men's as well as the women's 400 meter hurdles, which is normally a a really well looked after event, but not one that we expect to see great results in and world records being broken and things like this. And both of them had both of their world records absolutely shattered um, in this Olympics, which is just just remarkable, you know. And you're 100 percent right that that these things were were anomalies, but they were becoming so common that they were starting to become sort of par for the course. That uh, that if a record hadn't been broken in 20 years, that this was the time to do it. Yeah. Yeah, so South Africa finished off in uh, the 52nd place on the medal table. I think we sent 185 athletes to, to Tokyo and we competed in, in 33 Olympic sports, I think it is roughly, and we ended up with uh, three medals, one gold, two silver, and uh, of those medals, two of those three medals were won by one person. So I don't know, in terms of a return on investment, if uh, I was a investment man, I don't know if that was really that fantastic. <laughs> a true catastrophe as far as South African South African sport goes, yeah. And um and even even further overshadowed by the by the debacle that happened when uh, when Tatiana returned to South Africa and found out that that neither her nor our surfer are going to be receiving any bonuses for their Olympic efforts, yeah. No, I mean it is it is so it is so shocking and so shameful. I mean, I don't even understand. You know, and then I think there was somebody mentioned this to me during the week saying, you know, kind of what what uh, the UK's Olympic budget is, and I think it goes into the the hundreds of millions in terms of preparing their athletes. I see they finished off in fourth place versus the South African budget. And and I argued and I said, listen, you know, I don't actually think it matters how much money you throw at uh, SASCOC and the South African Organizing Committee and its associations, because it's not about the money that you get, it's about the money you spend. And I'd like to know how that money is spent. And I remember, I think this was a couple of Olympics ago, how much money was spent on the, whatever you want to call them, assistance or management or, I don't know, whatever they are that that sort of accompany the athletes. I mean, there was more money being spent oh, on the yeah. on the administration part of it than the actual athletes themselves. 100%, 100%. So at this point... At this point, I can understand the investors' the investors' frustration and their concern because, at the end of the day, it feels like they're they're throwing money into a pit, um, and that and that there's just it's never going to get passed and channeled into the right channels, and it's never going to end up in the end up in the hands of the right people, and that is a that is a great concern, and that is a concern not just in our in our sports department but across the board, really. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, once again, if we look at the, the sort of the, the top 10, top 20 countries that come up uh, in terms of the medal standing, no surprises there that these are also countries who take themselves seriously as economies, as uh, countries who are looking to be first in the world. We have them all there. United States, Japan, Australia, Netherlands, Germany, Canada, um, you know, the whole lot. Great Britain. I mean, it almost mirrors 
their uh, their leadership, their economic standing, and where they want to be in the world. And unfortunately, South Africa, number 52. And I guess, you know, once again, it boils down to leadership. It boils down to having the right people in the right place. And uh, we know the song and we know the story. So I'm going to move on from that. I don't know if there's anything else you want to, to mention around the Olympics, uh, Jeff. No, I think, I think I'm just looking forward to, uh, to Paris, yeah. Yeah, it's 2024. So uh, it'd actually be quite cool to actually be able to go. But who knows what, what our situation is uh, once we get to 2024. And it's only three years to go. Then another one of those, uh, sure, big events, British and Irish Lions Tour. Uh, another 12 years before we get to see that again. Your thoughts on that? Absolutely. Well, I only really have one thing to say, and that it's uh, that the more things change, the more they stay in the same, you know. <laughs> and uh, twelve years, twelve years on from his from his heroics in the last British and Irish Lions tour, Mister Mister Thirty Seven years old comes in and slams home the winning penalty. It's just it's just poetry in motion, really, when things like this happen in sports. But um, as I expected, the game was the game was tight. The game was cagey. It really took some some moments of magic. I think of Cheslin Colby's. Colby's moment, which uh, which really settled the match and changed the tide of the game, um, but really it was exactly what I expected. It was like a World Cup final, like a major test. Um, very cagey, very defensive, very solid, and then uh, and then yeah, just some some moments of magic, which fortunately we came out on the right side of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, great that we ended up winning it. Although when the win eventually came through, I didn't feel like it was that overwhelming. Maybe it was just me, but. I don't know what, if it was not having that crowd in the you know in in the stadium that really gave it that additional sort of momentum and excitement. But it was the whistle went, we'd won, and it was exciting. But it wasn't sort of 2019 World Cup kind of stuff. Oh, absolutely! Yeah. And I was watching I was watching the the two the two winning penalties from um, from our last British and Irish Lions tour, as well as the one that was kicked over on Saturday. Um, and I was thinking, what is what is the major difference? Because you're right, the the atmosphere, the goosebumps just wasn't there. And for me, it was it was certainly the lack of that crowd being there, um, because the whole of the the stadium would have just erupted, um, and it would have gone on parties long into the night. And that is something that we are really really missing, and that's a that's a real shame. But hopefully, with the turning of the tide, I saw the the Community Shield played in the in England over the weekend between Leicester and uh, and Man City, and uh, the crowds are back and the atmosphere is back, and that is that is exciting. That gives me hope that we are that we are getting out the other side of this, you know. And it's interesting as I was watching this British and Irish Lions tour, I also kept thinking about the lost economic opportunity around this because this would have been a seriously big tour in terms of. Hotels, restaurants, entertainment, uh, uh, travel, I mean, the whole lot. I mean, this would have brought huge, uh, a huge crowd of fans from the UK to South Africa. South Africans would have been involved, and all of that just didn't happen. Absolutely, yeah. That's a, it's a massive, massive... In ticket prices alone, the, the loss is catastrophic, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so that so that's done and dusted now, but we uh, have the Premier League to look forward to. That's coming back into effect, and I think over the last few days, the big story about Lionel Messi. He's out of Barcelona, and what happened there? I mean, he even I believe he even negotiated his salary down to fifty percent, and they couldn't work it. Absolutely, it's just an it's just an absolutely unreal situation. But for me, for me, for the game. And uh, and by the game, I mean I mean football. I think this is probably the best case scenario. So of course it's sad. Of course you saw his his press interview and his press conference um, where he was absolutely heartbroken about it. But at the end of the day, the decision has been made from a from a financial and from a sustainability standpoint. 
um, which is certainly something that I can get behind. I mean, Barcelona stand today something like 17 billion euros in debt. Um, and when they came and they said, listen, we want to pay this amount. And uh, and the La Liga, their governing body, just said, no, we're not going to allow it anymore for you to just be going further and further into debt and paying these astronomical fees for players. Um, and they really put their foot down and they and they drew their line in the sand. And they're the first of our of our major uh, major leagues around the world that has really made a step like this. And I think it's a step in the right direction um, that leads to sustainability, it leads to profitability, and it makes sure that these these exorbitant and outrageous fees that we're seeing going around are maybe going to be coming to an end at some point. Um, so I think for the game, it's a great decision. Obviously, he's just signed for PSG. Um, he signed a two-year contract with them, which is made PSG one of the most terrifying prospects in world football right now uh, to come up against. I saw FIFA considering making them the first six-star team that FIFA has ever hosted. So it is going to be a remarkable to see how he fits in there. It's a little bit weird for me to see him in a PSG uniform. Um, but I think for the future of the game, definitely the right decision has been made there, yeah. Tell me about the six-star team. Uh, Jeff, for, for those of us who are not uh, in, the, in the loop on that, what, what does that mean? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So FIFA have always had a grading score, um, which is which has gone between naught and five for their for their teams, which is just an overall score for how quality the team is going to be. Um, the highest scores have only ever been achieved with the likes of five um, under Pep Guardiola. Barcelona had a five um, recently when when Real Madrid uh, three peated on the the Champions League. They were given a five star rating in FIFA, and now PSG are being considered as the, po- the first potential six star team, meaning that that their normal grading system can no longer can no longer encompass the amount of talent that is in that in that PSG team. Um, so they're considering adding an extra layer to it and making them almost better than the best, if that makes sense. As far as on paper goes, we'll have to see how it equates on the field. Sure, yeah. So it sounds a little bit like a checkbook, uh, comp- checkbook competition. Uh, so whoever can write the biggest checks can get the best team together. Uh, what's your outlook for the Premier League coming up? Who do you think is going to be uh, in the final? Or is that too, too soon to call? Absolutely, yeah. So, so I think certainly as far as as far as the preseason goes, um, Man City are looking absolutely immense. They look a very powerful proposition. Now they've added Jack Grealish, who is a, who's one of the great talents in in world football. I would say um, into that squad, it just seems to be getting more and more powerful every day. Um, Liverpool should be back to to some strength once Virgil Van Dijk gets back in and and gets settled and gets match fit again. They are going to be a strong team again. Um, Manchester United have added a phenomenal, phenomenal centre-back in Rafael Varane, as well as that left wing, Jadon Sancho. They're going to be up in the mix, um, but certainly it's way too early to make any any sort of predictions. Um, but certainly I am absolutely pumped to get back into it. And as you know, my team Tottenham have pulled the, the shortest of short sticks in, uh, in pulling the champions first out of the hat. So we'll see if we can, if we can hopefully catch them with their pants down on the day, yeah. Well, I'm sure we're still going to have a lot to chat about as this really now comes into to full swing. And uh, I know that the Formula One is also coming up again uh, in the next couple of weeks. So we're going to have lots to chat about next week. Jeff Grinling, thank you so much again for uh, keeping your eye on the ball and uh, chatting sports with us again this week. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. You have a great weekend. You're listening to the Santon Times Podcast. Well, it's August, it's Women's Month, and we thought, well, you know, we're going to have to chat to a whole bunch of women now to uh, really mark and celebrate this month, and uh, decided to take a little bit of a different uh, spin on this particular interview, and I'm really excited and really fascinated to speak to our next guest. She is uh, Anri Fowler. Uh, she's from an organization called Blutsisters, 
better known as Crime Scene Cleanup. She looks after the northern Johannesburg part of the business. Uh, Anri, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. Maybe in your own words, you can give me a quick rundown of what is Crime Scene Cleanup. Thanks so much for this opportunity. Crime Scene Cleanup is, we go in after a crime has been committed, either through a suicide or homicide, a decom, and we go and clean up so that the family doesn't do that. I mean, it's they're already traumatized by what's happening and by the events. So to do all of that aftermath as well, no. So we go in and we do that for them and leave the place as if nothing happened. It sounds like a really uh, <laughs> harrowing business. And if you're listening and you're a little bit squeamish, this next uh, bit could be a little bit uh, heavy. So you might not want to be having breakfast, lunch or supper while we chat uh, with Anri. <laughs> There obviously is a very important service that needs to be rendered, especially in a place like South Africa. Oh, no, definitely. Definitely. I mean, it's it's an ongoing situation at the moment. We already so, we've got so much on our shoulders, you know, through work, through family and through this whole COVID pandemic. So why do you want to still be settled with, you've got this scene that's happened and now you must you know, endure that and clean it and go through all of that as well. So, no, that's why we are there. We specialized. I mean, we trained to do this work. We've got the right chemicals, the right equipment. And let us come and do that for you and give you peace of mind. So let's take a step back here. So the business is called Blood Sisters. You look after the northern Johannesburg part of the business. How did the business start and how did you get involved in this? Well, the business has been running for the past 20, 21 years, and they've got franchises throughout South Africa. And with myself, I've got a cleaning company, and I received a a call one day, you know, we've got this situation, can you come and assist us? It's a specialized job. Not every cleaning, well, a cleaning company can't just go and take the cleaning materials and go and clean it. So I said, you know, sorry, I'll have to pass you on to somebody else. And it made me think, well, this is maybe something that I'm, it accomplishments my own company. So let me expand and look into it. And I did some inquiries and found that the Joburg North franchise was up for sale and spoke with head office and with the existing franchisee and purchased it. So we've been running since, well, I've been the owner now of or the franchisor for Joburg North since November last year and getting our name out there, marketing and letting everybody know, you know, change of ownership and this is who we are. So tell me, what areas do you look after when we say Northern Johannesburg? From the reeds by um, the border of Midrand Centurion and then the inner circle of the highway. So our border on Greenstone, Edenvale, that's another franchise, down to Alberton, and up again, Joburg South on the West Rand up. So a, a very large area, a very, uh, I would say, a very lucrative area, a very upmarket or middle class area. Yes. What do you usually encounter when you get a phone call and you end up going on site? Hmm. Well, yeah, well... I say our most jobs has been decompositions. Those are where people have unfortunately passed away 
when you know either they've taken their own life or they had a heart attack and they don't have any family that lives with them and the family's far away so those we've had quite a lot of those calls there's been burglaries there's been burglaries that we've attended to and um, where the robber has been shot and there has been some suicides as well so they're all far and few between all over the show so it's not just a concentrated area that you say it's based in Westrand or it's based in Santon. Mm. You know, this is where the majority is. That's it's everywhere. And how busy have you been over the last eighteen months? I mean, have you seen an increase in business, a decrease in business? We're seeing a steady increase, but as we grow our name in the, of the business and we are known in the Johannesburg market, I think more and more people will start calling us. But most of the calls you know, do come from the family and also from our head office. If people are just Googling a name and saying, who who can come clean a crime scene? And then we are in the forefront. We've on top of Google. Sure. And how does this work? I mean, you've mentioned now, obviously something happens. It's either a, a suicide, a murder or some sort of shooting because there has to be, I guess, blood or something involved for you to come and clean up. Or there's been, like you say, someone who's maybe passed away, who's been in a house for an extended period of time and now somebody stumbles across them or comes across them. They phone you and then what happens from there? You know, what kind of equipment do you go out with? How does the, all of that work? So we've got our PPE equipment, our overalls, our respirators, you know, our boots and all that, and then also our chemicals. So it's not just a three-ply mask and a bit of handy-andy? No, 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 no. <laughs> no, our, um, our chemicals are quite strong, very, very strong. I mean, we've even got a um, chemical that if you've got blood on your cement, it will lift that blood up, sure. you know, so that you don't have that stain on the cement. You don't have that after smell that's there. I mean, death has got a specific smell. We eradicate that so that you can live in it, so that your house is exactly as it was before the incident happened. I mean, there is biohazard pathogens in the air, so we don't want to be contracted with that. We don't know what sickness that person had, if they did have a sickness, you know, if they passed away or anything. And how often are you involved with the actual investigation? I mean, have you often gotten to a situation which seems a little bit suspect or a little bit... uh... You know, it feels like there hasn't been some sort of process followed and it's someone just trying to sort of cover up their tracks uh, rather than, uh, you know, going through the, the, the full the full scope of things. No, luckily I haven't encountered that. I haven't been part of the investigation. On one scene, we did find the projectile of the bullet, which the police didn't. So we had to like try and find where it is, where did it ricochet from and that, but we found it. And obviously, we handed that into the in for the police, but that was a suicide. But and they recovered the gun in any case. So um, yeah, but that was once in all the times that I've had it. We just we haven't had that incident. That it's like I said, um, our our most is decompositions. So there hasn't been any foul play, anything like that. Well, you mentioned that there's pathogens in the air, you don't know what sickness this person has had or or what's led to this particular scene that you're having to clean up. How dangerous is this job if if you had to sort of look at it uh, quite clinically? Well, like I said, I mean, you're working with blood. You're working with human blood. 
And um, if you've got a cut on your finger while you're working or something happened where you cut a carpet and the carpet, carpet cutter cut your glove and you get that blood on your hand or something to that effect, I mean, it could lead to hepatitis. It could lead to anything. Mm. You know, you're healthy. You, like I said, you don't know what the condition of that person was. You know, were they alcoholic or were they sick? What was it? Did they have cancer? You don't know. So you don't want to be infected with what they had. You just try and keep yourself safe from all those hazards. You don't, you are so close to the scene, to the, to the area, and you're breathing that in. So that's why you've got your respirator. Mm. Um, and you see to it that it is a clean, new respirator. You know, you don't want an old one that you've been using for quite a while and you're still smelling all that stuff. So, yeah, you know, I mean, you look after yourself. It's your health that comes first. It's the health of the occupant of the house or the office or the work area that comes first. You're not the one that's always, I guess, on the scene. You've got a team of people who who get involved here. But I suppose in the beginning, you probably also had to get hands-on and just get an idea of what the business is all about. Is this something that you ever get used to? Because, I mean, I know if I had to look at blood or even a needle or anything like that, <laughs> it's not my sort of, uh, you know, most comfortable area to be in. How do you deal with this job? You know, I am on the scene with every single job. I'm on the scene. I'm the one that's help um, cleaning. So cutting and cleaning. And yes, we do go in as a team. If it is a bigger job, we do call in our other franchisees to come and assist us. That's closer to the area that's affected. And, you know, I'm exactly the same as you. I am so squeamish for my own blood. I'm like, there, hubby, <laughs> you know, fix it clean it up, whatever. I, I cannot stand blood. But this is totally different. You come in, it's a work. You know, you're there to work, you're there to help your clients and you just get stuck into it. And uh, clean up and that's it. So I think you just put your own fears aside and you see, okay, this is what I have. Don't contaminate the area further. So, you know, be careful of how you walk, be careful where you put your knees, your hands, and how you work with the, the chemicals. You know, so you don't want to have a bloodied glove and then touch your chemical bottle. And then you, con you know, you contaminating everything that you're using. So you're more conscious and focused on what you're doing than wondering, oh, you know, there's a needle, or no, there's more blood there, or oh no, there's this, you know, or there's a human fragment sitting over there that you have to touch and pick up and put away. So, no, you just focus. <laughs> Get over your fear. Do you have any stories you can share about, about sort of some of the scenes you've had to deal with? Yeah, you know what, it's, I think it's mostly the decomps. I love decomps. It's also a saddened part of the job. Um, especially we, you know, you've got, I've had quite a couple of health and wealthy people that decomped, you know, that something just, we don't know what happens to them. The family, you know, you don't really want to inquire by the family of how they died because it's already, it's, you know, it's so personal to them and it's so unreal that it happened. But for me, it's mostly of, and especially with this COVID situation, that's amplified it 
is when they are alone, when a family member is living alone and they've not been contacted regularly. You know, I mean, they've, it's, you know, they've been dead for what, a week, four days without anybody contacting them, be it work, be it family, you know, even a SMS or a WhatsApp or a Facebook page or something, anything, you know, just be in contact with your relatives. And I know everybody's working hard and you, you know, you don't get the time. And when you do find the time, it's eight or nine o'clock at night and you're thinking, well, you know what? It's so late, I can't really contact them. You know what? Time is nothing. Just pick up and just say, hi, I'm thinking of you. Are you there? And if their phone is off, go and investigate why is their phone off? You know, especially in today's times, because like I said, I mean, I've had many wealthy people that have died and it's from depression. It's from, um, and you wonder, but why, you know, they're part of the church. Should the church not have wondered where is this person or this guy's got his own business? Wasn't there a follow up from one of the staff or one of the clients or one of the family members, you know, so... I think that's that to me is the saddest part of this whole job. It's just that that side of the business. Is. Are there some crime scenes or some cleanup scenes that are more work than others? Um, yes, definitely. I find if it's a a fresh murder, so I call it fresh blood. Um, yeah, it's it's fresh blood, so it's it hasn't stayed for a while, so it's dried. And I know I'm getting to specifics here and grossness. <laughs> so don't drink your coffee now. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but yes, I mean, you know, when it's dried, it is a bit more difficult because it's it's spread further. You don't know how deep it's gone into the concrete or into the floorboards or into the bed or couch, whatever it was. Um, fresh blood for me is much more difficult because it spreads faster. Because, I mean, your blood and your fats, they separate. And that spreads. So, and you have to look everywhere where has it gone to. And it's more, how can I put it? Blood is blood. It's more liquid and jelly, you know, than dry blood, which you can just scrape and put away. So, for me, yeah, it's, if, if the scene has happened right there and we're on the scene as it happened, then, yeah, that's like a little bit, hmm. <laughs> just breathing deeply well Andre it's been a most uh, gruesome and grueling conversation with you but at the same time quite fascinating to hear about this uh, very needed service if people want to get in touch with you if uh, God forbid they need your services and your help how do they get in touch with you okay so number one they can go onto our website www.crimescenecleanup.co.za and they can just phone head office, which will direct the calls to whichever ever, whichever area the crime happened in, or they can contact me on my cell number zero eight three four five five eight nine four zero, and I will immediately answer and assist them. And I mean, if it's not in my area, I will obviously um, give them the the right person to contact or get that person to phone them rather, and go and start doing the cleanup. Well, that's Anri Fowler, Blut Sisters Crime Scene Cleanup. Uh, she looks after the Northern Johannesburg branch of this uh, 
Very interesting business. Uh, not your everyday kind of job, not your career that you would naturally uh, probably uh, gravitate towards. But, uh, Anri, thank you so much for taking the time to be on this podcast. And uh, I, I wish you all the best strength and safety as you carry on doing this very necessary work. Thank you so much for the opportunity. The latest news. The biggest names. The best destinations. The hottest entertainment. This is the Santon Times Podcast. Well, if you follow us on uh, Instagram, you might have seen that Eminent uh, dropped off a little something something, and that was to promote a new South African drama called Raker. And Raker follows a flawed but a brilliant criminal profiler called Raker Gamma, played by Kim Engelbrecht. She's haunted by her past. She investigates a string of brutal murders committed by a serial killer in the sugarcane fields of KwaZulu-Natal. And having been abducted as a child by a farmer named Spielmann, he's played by Ian Glenn, Reka is traumatized by the experience, but this also helps her to enter the minds of Africa's most notorious criminals and turn them inside out. I'm thrilled to be joined by Kim Engelbrecht, who plays the lead role of Reka. Kim, thanks so much for being on this podcast. Thanks, and uh, wonderful speaking to you. You again, it's been a long time. Well, Kim, it's uh, it indeed has been a long time, but I'm not going to get into that right now. But uh, you've been making waves both internationally and locally. Uh, what's it like being back on a South African drama? Oh, fantastic. Uh, I think myself and my manager, we were looking for something really cool to do for a long time, something that suits me and also where I am in my life and in my career. Um, and then we were just waiting for the right fit. And then Raker came along. Um, during the most um, tumultuous time in the world, you know, 2020, the middle of a pandemic. And yeah, I think it's it's been a it's been a really great show to be part of. I'm really proud of it. And I yeah. And I'm and I love the work that everybody in the team has done. Well, I think the timing couldn't have been better for you because I think traveling internationally right now must be such a nightmare or so limiting that to be able to do something of this quality and this, you know, production level right in your own backyard must have been an absolute blessing. Yeah, definitely an absolute blessing. I had come back to South Africa and then I did a TV show, a UK TV show in South Africa, and I was heading back to the States and then um, the world kind of shut down. We were at a, at a standstill. And I think everybody was really, um, yeah, it was a sensitive time and a, and a, time of, of insecurity and so the fact that I was able to work during a pandemic has been a real blessing for me. Yeah. I mean Kim, I've watched the first uh the first few episodes of of Raker now. I, I mean you sort of well into the season now. And uh in your own mind, how would you describe the show for people who've never watched it? Yeah, I think intrinsically um you you gave an amazing introduction. So that is definitely what the show is all about. But intrinsically it's it's three stories, you know, it's a it's an investigational uh procedural drama, a cop drama, an investigative piece about a criminal profiler on the hunt for a serial killer in the cane fields of KwaZulu Natal. Um that's the one situation that Raker faces. And then there's another side of Raker as well where it's a family drama. It's about a daughter trying to align with her mother and have some sort of a relationship with her. Also about Reka as a mother trying to um, find some sort of understanding with her daughter because she has absolutely no relationship with her daughter. So it's a, it's a family piece as well. And then there's the strange and convoluted affinity obsession that Reka has with the man that took her when she was 12 and held her captive for years. So 
um, it's all of these different layers to Reka. Some other person was explaining it as like an onion, you know, and every time you think you've understood who, what Reka is, you know, she just exposes another side of her. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it was a very interesting character for me to play. You know, I almost got these sort of prodigal son vibes, um, sort of the, the, the US version where you've got the son who's who's uh, raised or is the son of a serial killer. And uh, I, th- when I got to it really into the, into the series now, I started thinking, wow, this is almost very similar but quite different uh, and obviously set in a, in a local context. Yeah, exactly. I think um, because streaming is so um, accessible to us, we will be able to see Raker and then see similarities in other shows. You know, you have so many options now with these with these streaming um, uh, platforms. So I think it was really important to make something cool and something that people can um, identify with and uh, maybe be shocked by because the show is very um, brutal and does tackle very sensitive issues. But just to be able to give the viewer, um, you know, something to choose from. Because there's, I mean, I'm really, really happy that they're choosing Raker to watch because there are so many other shows that they can choose. Well, having having said that, I mean, you've worked on a lot of international shows. And, uh, I mean, Eminent has really been turning out some incredible dramas over the last two, three years. I mean, we saw uh, Inconceivable. We saw Still Breathing. We saw Lioness. Now they've got Raker. All I find on an international level very watchable, great production values, great storylines, some great acting. How do you feel that a lot of South African recent productions are measuring up when you have to compare it to some of the stuff that you're doing overseas? Um, I think the more we make, the more confidence we we get and then the the bigger productions we are able to to tackle. You know, with Trackers, with Lioness and all the other shows that you, that you mentioned, um, the quality can only go up. You know, we can only get better. We can only do more. So I think it's it's positive and I think it's definitely a step in the right direction. It gives um, directors an opportunity to compete on a different level, I think, because now suddenly they, you know, with more budget, they can now compete with international shows as well. It gives um, producers something, you know, to back and something to push. And then also it gives actors something to get their teeth into. You know, I mean, we've got so many incredible actors um, who have been schooled in soapies. You know, I've, I, I come from the, the line of soapies, which I'm very, very grateful for because it gives you an ability to um, to learn lines fast and to move really quickly. Um, so what these TV shows do is it just slows down that exact same process. You now have a little bit more time to go over script. You've got a little bit more time to develop character. Um, yeah, so I think it's a wonderful thing that they're doing because it's, it's only going to grow the industry, and I'm excited about that. Yeah. I mean, Raker is not light viewing. I mean, it is a heavy show to watch. You're dealing with some very serious and very real situations, especially in the South African context. Uh, you're dealing across different uh, class barriers, racial barriers, cultural barriers. I mean, um, very uh, very. Uh, current problems like gender-based violence and and sort of violence against women as well. And it must be quite something to have to get yourself into that space, preparing yourself as an actress to take on a days of a day of shooting, which is not going to be lighthearted or easy in terms of the subject matter that you have to tackle and convey. Mm. I think everybody on the show and everybody 
you know, down to the cast and the crew and everybody making the show, we knew that it was something special. We knew that it was something that needed to be dealt with very sensitively and with a great amount of care. Um, we did start shooting in the middle of a pandemic. So somehow all of us on the team, we were in a state of slowdown. We were in a state of what is going on and also very, very happy to be working, you know, very grateful to be working during that time. Um, the show is obviously set in South Africa, but also has um, UK backing and is being distributed by Fremantle internationally. So now suddenly we have a lot more time to um, to focus on different scenes and also just before scenes to have a state of debrief and let's go over this, let's rework this. And um, I think the wonderful thing is, is that everybody on set knew the material, you know, the cast and the crew, we all were invested in some way, you know, for those four months. And um, I myself saw it as I was, I felt very fortunate to be able to, um, focus only on Riker during this time. You know, I had no other projects on the go. I was away from home. I was set in either Johannesburg or in KwaZulu-Natal where the whole show is set. And, you know, you go home to a hotel room and you think only of the work. You think only of the material. You get to bed at a certain hour because tomorrow morning your full time is going to be four or five. Um, you get to sit and you try and be as ready as possible. But if you're not ready, I also have, you know, my producer, Serena Cullen from Serena Cullen Productions. And then I've got Cian Tuli, our wonderful director, Kat Cook, our wonderful director, um, them, so that they there to, to help me get through certain things that I'm maybe not okay with or I'm unsure about. So um, I think it was, I did have people to lean on. I had many people to lean on, you know, during the making of the show. Did you find that quite an important element to have? I mean, it must be quite mentally exhausting having to, A, put on a high-impact performance, but at the same time mentally digest a lot of the content that you're working with. Right. I think I also, as an actor, um, for me, what you want to do is you want to be able to immerse yourself in something. You know, you want to be able to transform and become someone else. You know, Reka is is not a real person. There is no Reka. But the realness of the situations that she finds herself in, those are real, you know? Um, so I try to be as real as possible, you know, in terms of how she would deal with these unthinkable situations. Um, but like I said, I did not do it. I did not do it. I didn't do it in isolation. I had my producer and my director, and I also had um, the help of our writer, Rowan Dixon, who spent almost 14 years trying to make this show. And then you have Serena Cullen who came on board nine years ago. So it's been a nine year process for her. So at no point were they at the loss of um, support for me. So if there was anything that I did need, they had an answer because they've had years to digest, to rework, to, um, yeah, to add a, an element of care and yeah, to the show and to, to the material. It's uh, fantastic. So I mean, it comes across, I mean, you know, every time you do a very close-up scene or a very intimate scene, you can actually see in your eyes and your face how you're processing that that scene. And it, and, and I think that brings soul to to a part as opposed to sort of just rocking up, reading the lines, doing your bits. And and, and, and I think it was Anthony Hopkins who, who was uh, very much about performing a part through the eyes and using your eyes 
to convey that information, and and I think it really does come across, Kim. I mean, you've you, you're involved in in so many, uh, as I say, big scale projects. I think there's still more to come for you. What are you hoping the future looks like for for Kim Engelbrecht over the next few years? Even though it's the most unpredictable time in the world right now. Mm, I think um, right now, I when I finished Reiko, we finished we wrapped on Reiko on the 22nd of Feb. 23rd of Feb, I came to Cape Town and I'm on a new production called Raised by Wolves. I'm in the second season of the Ridley Scott production. So that's where I'm at at the moment. So I've been really lucky to be able to go from one world to a whole other world, you know, and immerse myself into a different character right now. So, yeah, like you said, we don't really know what the future holds. And, you know, we always hope for the best. South Africans are probably the most hopeful people that I know. I, I actually, I don't have an answer for you. I don't know what's, what's next, but there are some projects that are in the pipeline that I'm looking at with my, with, with management. And yeah, nothing that I can really speak about at the moment, but yeah, let's see where it goes. And I'm hoping to be able to travel soon. Hopefully the, the gates are going to open and we are able to, you know, move freely in a, in a safe way. But um, this time I think has definitely taught everybody patience, you know, so I'm patient to see what, what happens next. Well, Kim, I'm excited to see where you move to next. I know you're going to be making us very proud of South Africans, as you have already with so many of the, the productions you've been involved with. And I really do appreciate you making the time to be part of this uh, this interview. Kim Engelbrecht, Raker, watch it on Mnet. Uh, you can catch it on Catch Up or you can watch it live. Make sure you check your schedules where you can watch it. And even if you're listening internationally, you heard you'll be able to watch it somewhere in the world. Uh, as uh, Kim pointed out, uh, so much of this content is now going global with a lot of the streaming platforms. So please make sure to check it out. Reka, a South African production, and Kim Engelbrecht, thank you so much for making the time to be part of this. Thanks. Nice chatting to you again. Connect with the Santon Times. Email editor at santontimes.co.za. All right, well, there you have it. If you want to get in touch, don't forget that email address, editor at santontimes.ca.today. Also, our social media accounts at santontimes and then the website, www.santontimes.ca.za. As always, follow, subscribe, and share uh, and leave a review or rating of this podcast on your preferred platform. A very special thank you to my guests who made the time to be on this week's episode and we're still in Women's Month, so I'm thrilled to have uh, so many women join us for those conversations. As COVID-19 numbers remain, and uh, as mentioned, I highlighted uh, my incident or my run-in with crime this this week, I encourage you to stay strong, stay safe, and thank you for listening, and let's connect again next week.